Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Sabah Khaled has a mission, and that is to educate, entertain, and empower the girls and women of Pakistan. Sabah is the founder and CEO of Arup Raj, a social enterprise which educates girls about health, hygiene, and safety through the use of interactive and engaging technology. So I honestly do believe that we have to, you know, understand what the audience need and not stick to the sexy ideas or the sexy technologies because often the sexy technologies cannot solve the problem at hand. Uh, I realized that the kind of education that I wanted to provide, the women who needed it most did not even have their own phone. I spoke to Sabah and began by asking her what the purpose is of her social enterprise. I wanted to use technology for social good. I've I've benefited from technology so much in my life and I wanted to, you know, kind of bring all the benefits and opportunities that technology brings to other people. I was also at the moment really finding my way in Pakistan and I was really frustrated with a lot of the things that were happening with women and girls. So I wanted to build a platform where we could provide positive content through digital technology. And that is how uh, Orithraj came about. Currently, we provide solutions which span content. One of them is our chatbot, which is called Raji. Raji provides menstrual education to girls in both rural as well as urban settings in schools and community centers. And it's utilized by some of the largest NGOs in Pakistan. Another aspect of our work is that we provide digital literacy solutions to women and girls. You know, a quarter of the world is made out of rural uh, populations, but they don't have access to basic digital technologies. And we uh, provide workshops and trainings that provide that solution to them. We also have a cartoon series that we've built, uh, which is called Raji. And that also, it embeds various aspects of the topics that we want to introduce to girls, which is education, literacy, uh, which is health and other aspects to girls through our cartoons. So these are some of the products that we've built at Orifrage. So these sound like amazing products. And I'm fascinated by the use of technology. So I will come back to that in a little bit. What I'm really interested in is what is going on in Pakistan with women, young girls and their families that put you in a position where you kind of went, I have to deal with this now. So imagine a country with uh, 200 million people. It's absolutely like, you know, growing at a pace population wise which is astounding. And I live in Karachi, Pakistan. And I, at the time when I started my work, I had traveled all around the world. I had uh, exposure of various countries and what the overall situation of women's rights were there. And whenever I used to come back, I was always disappointed that some of the most basic things that women should have the right to have were not provided to them or were taken away from their existence. And one particular story that really moved me and also like made me realize that, you know, I'm so fortunate and so privileged because had I been born in a different situation, my life would have been completely in a different way. And it was, uh, maybe you've heard of Kandil Baloch. She was a social media influencer from Pakistan and she was murdered by her brother because the way that she was uh, expressing herself online, he did not agree with it. And he thought the best way to deal with this situation was to kill her. For me, it wasn't just the 
what happened, it was the aftermath of what happened because within Pakistan, more women and girls actually agreed with what happened to her because they said the, the, the way that she acted, exposing her body or the sentiments that she shared online, if any woman in Pakistan does that, that's what she deserves from the men in her family. And I could not fathom that the country had gotten to a point where not just the men, but women and girls had just kind of absorbed that idea that they they did not have this right to exist. And if they ever moved from what the traditional route of society was, you know, the only way to deal with a woman like that was death. I also at that moment was a single woman in my early 30s in Pakistan. And Pakistan does not know what to do with women like myself. Like if you have gotten past that age of uh, acceptable marriage, you haven't had a child and you're out there exploring the world and you are living this life that does not fit into the box. They don't know what to do with you. And so I was I was also not understanding what, what, what is my role in this society? So it was like on a society level, I was frustrated. I was also frustrated that I wasn't fitting in whatsoever. And also like overall, I couldn't connect the world that I was born in and the world that existed outside. So these were all these, <laughs> I would say battles that were going on in my head. And one way for me to kind of, you know, put all my experiences together, I knew that I could provide content. And that's exactly what I started off with. Like the first product that I built was a blog. It was a blog about all of my frustrations with living in Pakistan and, you know, not being able to go out and walk and do some of the simplest things. And, you know, just the fear of harassment, the fear of so many things that my mobility was affected and so many other aspects of my living, basic living were affected that I wanted to change it, not just for other people, but for myself as well, so that I could exist in Pakistan without, without, you know, basically fear. And so that's that's where it really came from. In terms of what you're doing and in terms of what propelled you to do this, how hard is it to change cultural attitudes? When I started working on this topic, and of course, you know, menstrual education or reproductive health education comes under the larger context of sex education. I couldn't even say the word out loud. And I every time I had to kind of revise everything that I was saying because I didn't want my family to think that I was going out there and saying stuff that misaligned with what they believed in. I come from a very, very conservative traditional family. So although they they believed in my intellect, they did not believe in any of the ideas that I wanted to bring forward in the world. And I think it, it the, the challenges and the roadblocks are at every level, like within the team, when you're trying to build a team, when women and girls who are working with us go back and say that we're working with an organization called Aurat Raj, we're working on reproductive health education, their parents forbid them to work for us because they are not comfortable with, with these ideas and they don't want their daughters to, to be associated with an organization like that because at the end of the day, maybe their marriage proposals might be affected by it. Maybe their extended families might say something to the parents. They'd be like, oh my gosh, this is what she's doing with her life. Other than that, there's the other aspect when I started fundraising and when I was trying to build this idea uh, slowly and gradually, every time that I went and I I, you know, spoke about, you know, the situation of women and girls in rural areas, especially their reproductive health needs, especially the fact that they miss school because of their period. 
just the fact that when I would say periods, men would avoid my eye contact, like, you know, investors would just be so uncomfortable that they would not be able to even hear my pitch. Also, they wouldn't take me seriously. They would be like, okay, you know, this isn't really like something that requires investment. You are just doing something which is, let's say, a non-profity, very, um, I would say, social good wasn't something that people thought could be investable. It could, it's something that they still, I think, struggle with as investors in Pakistan. So I think on that level, my own family, I remember, was so opposed to it. However, the work had to be done and I found team members, I found funders, I found investors, but that came after like realizing that, you know, sometimes uh, the people that you think are going to support your work turn out not to be the ones who are going to support your work because there's a whole, I would say, their, their minds have to be convinced before they're willing to kind of go through that change. So I found my investors, I found my supporters, I found my team members through uh, networks that believed in me, through partners that believed in me, but it came much, much later and through a lot of struggle. In terms of the taboo subjects and issues that you are helping young women to deal with, can you, can you talk a bit about that? And how are you actually kind of dismantling the system, but at the same time, empowering those young women and girls? When you start your period in Pakistan, um, there's certain things that are associated with starting your period. So the moment that you start your period, uh, and if your mother knows about it, she will tell you that you have to start dressing differently. You have to start acting like a woman or a lady. And this might even happen when you're nine or 10, and it, it impacts you in very, very different ways. You might be told that now you might think about getting married. It doesn't matter what age you start your period, but just because you've started your period, you are thought of as emotionally and psychologically ready for marriage. Sometimes you, you're even told that you might be excluded from certain activities, maybe from going inside the kitchen or from holding certain foods or even holding a baby because, you know, you're thought of as impure. And these are things that we actually researched and discovered when we started doing a lot of our interventions in rural areas. And how our interventions worked was that we had this particular chatbot. It was built in Urdu, which is a local language. We would go inside with our partners to various community centers. We would invite women and girls and we would ask them, you know, what were their overall ideas about periods and I still remember every time we you know say the word Mahavari which is uh, Urdu for periods women and girls would like start laughing they would like not look and they would be like why why is this girl obsessed with this topic and they would get really really embarrassed but when you start the conversation and all of these different ideas that they've kind of kind of inherited from their mothers and their grandmothers they start coming up like you shouldn't shower during this time and they're they're absolutely like, they can't let go of these ideas and it takes a really long time for them to change their ideas about it. And after we've done this overall, like a focus group, a discussion, and we've kind of seen how comfortable they are with having this conversation, that's when we bring in technology. I mean, if we just ask them to download an app and just start speaking to Raji, our chatbot, it wouldn't work. There's so many barriers to technology. There's so many barriers to reproductive health education. And it meant that we had to kind of like bring the technology to them, bring the education to them, instead of hoping that a, an ad, a Google ad or, you know, better SEO will get that information to them. 
And what we've seen is that when women go through at least two or three interventions, that's when they actually change their mind. You know, just having that one conversation, you know, maybe makes like a 70 to 80% difference in the way that they manage their periods. But it's long term, like it's talking about your body, it's talking about various aspects of puberty, it's talking about your autonomy. There's so many things that we haven't discussed ever in Pakistan. Nothing about our bodies has ever been a discussion. Um, uh, and we kind of are uncomfortable with our bodies. I've had a very, very difficult also relationship with my own body and accepting all the different amazing and also challenging that things that happen that we sometimes feel like we have no control over. What happens when they get home? Because you're also talking about generational embedding of these beliefs and these behaviors. So I, I want to explore the fact that taboos over time, they've come from culture, they've come from society, they've come from the lack of education, the lack of belief in science. For instance, one idea is that if you leave your pad uh, or let's say your cloth that you've used for your periods outside, someone will use it for magic. Now, this is something that is just a couple of women who maybe thought that this might happen have passed it down over the years. We don't know where that idea comes from. But however, over the larger masses, no one would leave their menstrual rag or cloth outside because they truly believe that it might cause someone else to put a magic spell on them. It sounds absolutely crazy. And if you dig deeper, you don't know where they come from. And this is, I feel like this is the kind of conversations we started that, you know, we asked them, you know, what is this idea? Where did you hear from it first? And they said, oh, my sisters told me this. My grandmother told me this. Like, you know, just digging deeper gets you this information. And overall, like when they go back, they, they start having conversations with their families. They start exploring the idea themselves as well. However, a lot of times they go back and there's a small population that goes back convinced that you know the taboos don't need to change, the ideas don't need to change. And sometimes you know you you can't do anything about that. I would say that the, the number of people who don't change their ideas, but a large majority, I would say 80% of the women go back and they talk about it with their daughters, they talk about it with their sisters. You know, it does create a change. And we see it in the way that you know, when we've spoken to schools girls stop skipping school during that time. When we go back to them, and I said, you know, a couple of interventions, we always ask them, how are the ways that you're managing your period now? Are you still using the same method as before? And some of them really step even, I would say, they go beyond what's required. They become our champions. We recently had, in 2021, started a program for women who were so convinced about this uh, work and especially menstruation as a topic that needed education, that they started doing all the interventions that we were doing in their own communities. And this is where I think it became something that on a scale happened without us intervening all the time. Like I knew that I couldn't be in rural areas all the time. I knew that it had to go very organically on its own. And training those champions, those menstrual you know, believers and those people who really want to do this education, they became the source that actually pushed our message across. And the way that we do it now is that we provide them with audio content and they take that audio content through WhatsApp. Taking that content, they go into their own communities and then they play that content. After that, they have a discussion 
And, you know, every time we get a picture from one of those discussions, I asked, did you get some sort of negative feedback? And so far, we've not gotten any negative feedback because the women who actually do it, they're very trusted in the community and they make sure that the kind of audience that they curate is the kind of audience that will be willing to hear it. Oftentimes people go away and they don't change their behavior, but at least they're willing to listen. And I think listening is the key. I mean, that's the start. You talk about all this technology you're using. I mean, what a wonderful way to use WhatsApp. I usually just get doggy pictures from my sister. Um, <laughs> but using WhatsApp and this chatbot. Can you explain a bit more about how the chatbot works? Initially, when we started building our chatbot, the ideas that we had for the chatbot were really, really, um, I would say next level. We wanted to use artificial intelligence. We wanted to build in local languages. We wanted its ability to you know, solve all the problems that existed in Pakistan. And it was maybe just a very optimistic and a lack of understanding how uh, the limitations of technology work. And the first prototype that we built did absolutely nothing because uh, there were too many areas that people would ask questions to Raji. Uh, and Raji was only trained on certain topics because we didn't have the time to curate conversations or data on every aspect of, let's say, a potential question that could come. And when you're talking about health and when you're talking about very, very sensitive subjects, it is really critical that the right answer comes from a chatbot. Let me just go uh, a little bit deeper into what a chatbot is. A chatbot is an algorithm that you build that allows anyone to ask a question and for the chatbot to give provide an answer, a helpful answer that accurately answers that question. However, our chatbot was not answering any of the questions accurately because we did not have enough of a data set to answer all the questions. And we also didn't even think that, you know, people would ask the questions that came to us. At that time, we weren't also focusing on one core area. I was talking about so many different topics. I was talking about contraception and we were talking about women's mobility. We were talking about their education. We were talking about uh, sometimes healthcare conditions like uh, any bacterial infections or STDs, you know, just the chatbot was like almost a solution to everything. And what we came across was constantly the chatbot giving wrong answers. So what we realized that we had to pick an area and we had to automate a lot of the answers because we wanted to at least have certain people's education or their answers correct. It was impossible to try to cater to everyone in Pakistan. So I honestly do believe that we have to, you know, understand what the audience need and not stick to the sexy ideas or the sexy technologies, because often the sexy technologies cannot solve the problem at hand. Uh, I realized that the kind of education that I wanted to provide, the women who needed it most did not even have their own phone. Uh, they did not even know how to download from, let's say, uh, Google uh, Play Store. They didn't even know what a Play Store was, what email was. There were so many barriers to getting to our app. The app was almost useless. The chatbot in itself was useless. So according to the audience, we started, started building different tools and different solutions. So our cartoon was a way for us to reach those women who did not have access to technology. So we would take the cartoon series into community centers and they would watch it. Um, so it's been a different uh, response. Like most unicorn startups, they build and people come to them. 
we go to the audience. We, we make sure that our technology reaches those people who can't reach it themselves. So I, I really had to kind of like not get myself attached to AI. Our chatbot right now does not use AI. It's very, very, uh, I would say it's button based, but it's made for people who have very low digital literacy that uh, have very low tech availability. They have smart feature phones that are different from smartphones. So all of those things have to be kept in mind when we're designing, because if we want to include people who have been forgotten or they've just been discluded always, then you have to kind of design differently. I'm, I'm curious, as well as educating young girls and women, are you in educating boys and men? We have not done any intervention with boys because this in itself is also a very, very sensitive area and uh, one that I am almost afraid to tread because I don't know what the response might be, especially in the areas that we work. And we, although uh, all the NGO partners that we work with, they are led by men. So we do have those conversations with men at the leadership level. However, having that with adolescent boys or teenagers or men is still very, very difficult. And that is something that will either require a lot of bold action from entrepreneurs or it would require a lot of other changes within our schooling, within within our families for us to have this conversation openly. I would say that in the next five years, I hope to be able to open that conversation with boys and men um, because we, we can't predict what response we might get. I don't worry about my safety that much, but I do worry about our team members' safety. I also worry about the safety of our champions. So for me, it's, you know, I, I would rather play it safe for as long as I can uh, and do the work that I need to do until I feel like the country is ready for menstrual education for boys and um, men. Saba, how do you carry on when so much of what you do is fraught with fear and worry? How do you manage? I think we've been very fortunate with partners um, and I started finding partners in the first year of our work. The first partner that we had was UNICEF and you know, just having somebody who believes in your work and thinks it's important was the first step. I, I remember that they gave us access to the first five schools that we could go into. UNESCO stepped in and they gave us access to their communities. So having these larger organizations come in and believe in your work at, at that stage is really important. Um, I've had a lot of mentors and, uh, you know, they've provided me certain, let's say, activities that I can do to kind of manage that fear, manage that risk-taking, manage that, you know, knowing that what you're doing is important. Uh, even if, let's say, the culture and society is kind of pitting against you, you still keep going. You find new ways to keep going as well. And I think for me, digitization or technology really provides, I feel like it makes me very comfortable, especially when we're sharing this content through uh, devices. I feel like, you know, we're sending the content directly to our champions. You know, there, there are not a lot of intermediaries in between. So the, that is one of the ways that, you know, provides me some sort of comfort. At the end of the day, I mean, nobody really knows, you know, that fear, you have to kind of ride it out. However, I have to say that, you know, having the right people believe in you, having that, you know, once when we were funded and we were supported by MIT and Vodafone, having these large scale institutions say that we believe in your work for an entrepreneur who, 
you know, has started on their idea, it really changes how you view yourself and your work. A few people within my team have really, really been, you know, courageous in standing by when things got difficult, when things got challenging. A lot of nonprofits also said this work was not needed. This work was too dangerous and did not partner with us. But I was pretty fortunate to find others who did. Uh, Arat Raj was one of the uh, Commonwealth Award winners for 2020. What did that mean to you to win that award? We were on such a high at that time because we had gotten accomplishments one after the other. And, and this was the first time that our lead technology developer, Jaya, received the award. And for me, this was really important because I had started the work and of course, all the limelight had always been on me and I was the person behind the whole brand. But Commonwealth saw that there's not just the leader or the CEO, but there are people who also believe in their work and are working sometimes 10 times harder than the CEO and sometimes also like really risking it all for a common belief or common vision. And so when they awarded her, I was just so proud of her and, you know, just having that experience. I remember that she was really looking forward to going to uh, the UK. Uh, however, because of the pandemic and, you know, things very quickly changed, she wasn't able to go. Uh, however, I wish that she had a chance to actually receive the award and uh, be part of the ceremony. So what is the future then for Arat Raj? As I said before, that you know, we kind of design based on what are the needs of the community right now. And from the work that we've done in the last few years, we've realized that we want to develop content now, not just uh, in our local language, Urdu. We want to do it in languages of Pashto, Balochi, Punjabi, because this is really important. There's so many barriers to uh, receiving this content in a localized, contextualized way. So my hope and my goal is to build a platform where we house content on reproductive health in local languages so that it's more accessible and inclusive of all of our rural communities because there are too many barriers for them to get this information. And we want to make sure that we get this information in the most localized and contextualized way possible. That was Sabah Khaled, the founder and CEO of Arut Raj. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and how to apply for our master's programme by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.